Turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. We're going to be looking at verse chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 today. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The title of the sermon this morning is, Do Not Love the World. And the key words, kids, are desires, world, and love. Last week, we looked at verses 12 through 14, and we seen how the Apostle John here was sort of deviating from his flow of teaching and his flow of thought and uh, um, confronting false teachers and false believers in order to bring comfort to God's true children. Um, surely they were probably wondering if they were, if they were truly saved themselves, and so John took the time as a good pastor to bring encouragement, and we've seen in that encouragement, that he was reassuring the believers that they were forgiven in Christ. Their sins were forgiven. That's already happened. Um, that they knew the Father. That, um, that they knew Jesus Christ, who was from the beginning, and that they were overcomers in the faith. And so now we see he sets out to address the one issue that will really kill any spiritual progress in them, and that is how they see the world. Remember, at the very end of the sermon last week, we, we talked about that, that God, uh, command, he, he's, he's giving them these truths about their forgiveness to assure them, but he's also telling them that they must be progressing in the faith. They must be growing from, small, from children in the faith to, to young men in the faith to fathers in the faith. And so now he sets out to address the one issue that really will stifle any growth, and that is how they deal with the world. Worldliness has been a problem for God's people since the fall of Adam and Eve. The tension has always been, do we as children of God impact the culture we live in, or does the culture impact us, and do we lose our distinctiveness? The Apostle Paul warned of this danger in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he wrote, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And toward the end of his life, Paul sadly wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. He says, For Demos, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. One of Paul's closest uh, companions in the faith had deserted him and because of the world. Christians have attempted to counter the influence of worldliness, uh, have often been done in the wrong way. We've often done it in the wrong way. One way some Christians in the past and even today have combated worldliness is to remove themselves completely from the world. Uh, these are the people who take monastic vows, who go live in monasteries, become monks, or isolate themselves from much of the world like the Amish people in our own country. Another way that Christians have incorrectly combated worldliness is to make a list of activities that is believed to be worldly, and then demand that everyone abstain from these activities. This is happening in many of our fundamentalist circles and groups, uh, and the list usually includes things like drinking, smoking, going to the movies, playing cards, dancing, etc., etc. It is believed that if you abstain from these activities that you will not be worldly, that you will be um, defeating the world. The isolation or the strict uh, rules approach do not work because worldliness at its core is a matter of the heart. If your heart is in love with the world, it doesn't matter. If you force yourself to stay away from the things of the world, uh, you're still going to be worldly if your heart is not in it. And in the end, you will not remain away from it anyway. Even if you do attempt to, to remove yourself from it or abstain from certain activities, if your heart's not in it, you're not going to remain there from it in the end. We see this all the time with kids who grow up being taught a certain activity is wrong, but then when they go off to college, they just fall deep headlong into it because their heart was not changed to understand the reasons why it might have been wrong. And so this is what John sets out to, to try to combat in, in the early church here and these, and these believers uh, to try to, to encourage them he, he, and, and to, and to con, convict them that they have to be careful how they deal with the world. And there is a correct way to do it, and this is what we're going to look at here today in these verses. So follow along. Uh, in chapter 2, we're going to read verses 15 through 17. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, the big idea, the the main point that we're going to see in these verses that John is trying to teach us this morning is that true Christians, those who are actually converted to Christ, do not love the world. And he gives us four reasons why this is so, and this is going to be kind of the outline I'm going to follow. And uh, The first two are in verse 15 and then 16 and 17. But the first one we're going to look at, uh, one of the reasons why, the first reasons why true Christians do not love the world is first and foremost because it is commanded by God's Word. Secondly, because of our love for the Father. Thirdly, because of all that is in the world and its opposition to God. And then finally, because of our eternal perspective. And so that's what I'll be following this morning. So first, let's look in the first part of verse 15. Why we Christians do not love the world is because it is commanded by God's Word. He simply says, do not love the world or the things in the world. This is an imperative. It's in the imperative in the Greek. It's a command. It's commanded by the God of the universe, the God who sent His Son to redeem us from our sins, the God who came as a man, suffered and died for our sins, the God who gave us His Word by His Spirit is commanding us to not love the world. Now, what are this word? Let's look at the definitions of some of these words he's talking about. First, love. This is the Greek word agapeo. It's a familiar word to us all. We've heard it before. This word means the love of attachment, intimate fellowship, Loyal devotion is the same word that we, look, we see being used back in chapter 2, verse 10, when John says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him, in him there is no cause for stumbling. It is the love which God demands in the summary of his law when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, Love your neighbor as yourself. It encompasses the ideas of setting your affections upon and sacrificially living for the object, for your love. So this is a powerful word here. This is not just some feeling uh, that that we tend to think uh, associate with love. This is powerful. This is an action. This is a verb. Um, It's it's loving, agapeo love. And so that's the depth. Keep that in mind as we go through looking at these verses today. Also, let's look and see what John means by world. It's the Greek word cosmos in scriptures, uh, in in the... In the Bible, we see that there are actually three different ways that this uh, word can be translated. Uh, The first, the way the the word cosmos is used when it's talking about the earth and all of creation itself. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So he's talking about all of creation. Everything that encompasses creation can be used, uh, can be called cosmos, can be called the world. The second way we see the Bible using this word and when it's talking about the human race in general as image bearers of God. We see this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So He's talking about every human being that's ever lived made in the image of God. These are the people that God so loved that He sent sent His Son into the world to save out of that. And so in that instance... Uh, that's a way that the word, word cosmos can be used. And then there's a third way which talks about the evil system that is opposed to God in His righteousness. It is this meaning that John is referring to here. The world that we are not to love is everything this present, evil, God-opposing system throws in our faces every day. And so that's what John is speaking about here. And see, the New Testament presents two opposing spiritual systems in the universe. We have the kingdom of God and we have the kingdom of the world. They have two entirely diametrically opposed worldviews. They have two different lords. Satan is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In, uh, in John's gospel, uh, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. Uh, these two systems have a different spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So there's there's also different wisdom, he says in 1 Corinthians 3.19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So in short, the term world 
is used by John in this letter to refer to everything that is against God and his kingdom. Uh, and he says um, three things in here about, about the world is, that, that we're going to be looking at. And so, so this third, third way is the way John is talking about the world, the evil system. Keep that in mind that, John is oppo- that, that we're opposed to. The second reason why true Christians do not love the world we see in the last latter part of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here again, the verb love here is in the present tense in the Greek, which indicates an ongoing habitual loving of the world. In other words, he is not talking about a single instance of worldliness, of loving the world. He's speaking about a continuous uh, pattern of loving the world, a way of life. This is your way of life. James chapter, uh, says in James 4.4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So remember here, we said there's two kingdoms at work, and they are as diametrically opposed to each other as you can get. And remembering that the word love here, here is agapeo, and this word means a love of attachment, an intimate fellowship, and a loyal devotion, so in other words, you were so devoted and attached to the object of your love, you cannot perceive of anything else. So there is nothing better in the world, in this whole world, than the object of your love. That's what John is getting to. So with these two truths in mind, the world and the, God, the world system and God are opposites. They are completely opposite. And second, the love that you feel is powerful. You can see why John says you can't have both. You can't do one and the other. You can't have both. You can't straddle the fence. You can't spend one day involved in one kingdom and another day involved in the other. It's impossible. Jesus was uh, alluded to that when he was speaking about the love of money in Matthew 6, 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And so in that instance, uh, Jesus is, is showing the impossibility of being in love and involved Uh, being totally devoted to both of these uh, ways of life. And so uh, the third reason why we're going to be looking at true Christians do not love the world, verse 16, because of all that is in the world is in opposition to God. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. He gives us three uh, different types of, 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 of ways that we love the world, different types and things that we do in the world. We're going to look at these individually. The first he talks about here, the desires of the flesh. Some of your Bibles may say the lust of the flesh. It's the same word. Uh, the word desire here is used collectively and represents cravings that include sexual desire as well as covetousness. Many of these desires are natural and legitimate if they are kept under control and used in the sphere for which God has designed them. The desires for food, companionship, sex, and security are legitimate when we keep them within God's limits. And when we do not allow them to usurp His rightful place in our hearts. These cravings or desires become evil, though, when they cause man to disobey God's clear commands of, You shall not covet. These cravings originate in man's nature and give birth to sin, as James says, uh, then, de- then desire, when it has conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Paul tells us a list, gives us a list of the actual sins of the flesh in Galatians 5 when he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And he goes on to say, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we see here not an exhaustive list, but but a good comprehensive list of the desires of the flesh and what those look like. It's everything... That, that drives our flesh, is, that inflames our flesh to want things. It's covetousness. It's idolatry. It's desiring to have these things. Uh, some of them good, but, but, but when they become so powerful that they take God's place in our life, then they become the desires of the flesh. The fallen flesh um, is what he's talking about here. 
The next thing he talks about is the lust of the eyes. The eyes are the channels to man's soul. Now, this is probably more subtle than the previous one we just looked, like, looked at, but it's just as deadly. Instead of committing adultery or fornication, people will view pornography. Jesus said in Matthew 5:28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you see, it's not just about the act itself. It's the desire of the heart that comes through the eyes. This is the lust of the eyes. Even if no physical sin has occurred, Jesus says that anger can be murder of the heart. So if you look at a person or you desire in your heart to kill that person, you've already murdered him in your heart. Another problem that we have, especially in our society, is a lust after material things. People lust after things they see on the store shelves, on TV commercials or on the Internet that they do not really need. This is the, uh, that is a lust of the eyes that Jesus says in Matthew 6:22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that you, in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Uh, Job in uh, chapter 31 says that I have made a covenant with my eyes that I could not gaze at a virgin. And so what he's saying is here is that um, the actual physical um, sin of adultery or whatever that, will be, that could be manifested later starts by coming into the portal of the eyes going into the heart and going into the flesh. This is the lust of the eyes. This is why um, a fast food restaurant in our day does commercials of a, of a seductive woman eating a hamburger and half naked. Why do they do that? Because... They have done market research to know that probably men are the ones who buy that hamburger the most. And so what do they do? They put this young lady on the commercial to pull them into what they're trying to sell, going through the portal of the eyes to drive the lust of the eyes and and continue on into the lust of the flesh. And so we have to guard our eyes, as Job said. I have to make a covenant with my eyes. And that's not just about sexual sin. That goes across the board. If If I have a problem with materialism or or having to have the nicest car, the nicest house, or whatever it is I'm after that's driving me, it starts here. It's going through the eyes and feeding the eyes. Uh, and so Jesus um, in, you know, said in Matthew that if, that if um, your right eye is causing you to sin, you pluck it out. Well, that's not actually going to stop you if you physically pluck out your eyes. A blind man can still lust. But what he's saying is take those drastic steps like Job is saying, I made a covenant with my eyes that I'm not going to allow myself to be driven by these things that are external to me that will take God's place ultimately. And so I have to watch myself. And every one of us has to tell ourselves that we are all susceptible to doing this. We can't give ourselves an out and say, I'm above that. I don't struggle there. Every one of us are apt to fall according to the desires of the flesh, which will be fed by the lust of the eyes. And then finally, the third thing he talks about here is the pride in possessions. <laughs> the word pride there in, uh, in the Greek is, is really a, is, is defined as an empty braggart talk, an impious and empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthly things. That's what that word pride means. And then possessions is um, really talking about life in general, the period or course of life, that by which life is sustained, resources, wealth, or goods. And so we can see that the first word meaning boasting of a braggart or an imposter and may even mean to the point of arrogant violence and the second word denoting life with respect to actions and possessions. So we put those together, we see that this is a person who brags about his deeds and goods and expresses lust for advantage and status. Martin Lord Jones in his commentary on this verse says, the best way to define uh, this uh, desire of the, uh, for the pride and possessions Uh, is to call it self-glorification. It's a very subtle thing, self-glorification. He's right. Out of the three, I think this is probably probably the worst one of them all. This was actually the sin of the Pharisees. Uh, They went to great lengths to slay the sins of the flesh and and, and, and guard their eyes. They went to great lengths to do this. But Jesus called them hypocrites. He said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They, they, they love their position and, and the things that they have accumulated, the power 
and, and, and all the, the prestige that they had accumulated, they loved that more than God. He called them whitewashed tombs who were full of dead man's bones. So these are not ways to make friends. He was serious about the sin that they were um, exhibiting. It is the pride of possessions that violates both of the two great commandments, love for God and love for neighbor. This is when you're exalting yourself. The very opposite of loving your neighbor is to exalt yourself. And so um, we see that here, that that is what he's talking about in the pride pride in possessions. Uh, It's not just talking about having things necessarily. It's talking about the pursuit of those things and and the... and the satisfaction that we, that we draw from those things, if they're a part of our life, if they make up our life, if that's what we're li- our life's about, then that's what we're guilty of, the pride in possessions. Um, and because really, uh, like we said earlier, these things aren't necessarily evil in themselves. Um, James says in 117, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so we see that, that God does bless us with things in this life. But he does not bless us with these things to become our God. He is our God, and he will bless us according, uh, with things that we need to live. And remember, the key word is there, the things that we need. And so that's one of the areas that we struggle with as Americans the most, I think, is we get mixed up sometimes what, it, what we actually need and what we actually want. And so we have to be careful there. And so also we see Paul talk, or um, John, I'm sorry, the fourth and final reason why true Christians do not love the world, verse 17, because of our eternal perspective. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Passing away, the word there is uh, in the present indicative is a statement of fact. This is happening right now. This world is dying. This world is passing away. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.31, And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world, the present form of this world is passing away. I believe it's at this point that American Christians struggle to comprehend the most. This is what gets us the most. It is that this world is passing away and the things of this world are only temporary. The scriptures, when comparing this life with the life to come, describe it as only a vapor. The question is, do we really see this life as only a vapor? Or insignificant when compared to eternity in heaven with God? The scripture says that we are sojourners and exiles in this world. A sojourner and an exile is someone passing through a country that they do not belong to, nor do they have any rights or expectations of benefits from that country. That's what a sojourner in exile was in the, New Te- on the, in the Old Testament. And the question I have, is that the way we see ourselves in this life? Do we see ourselves as a sojourner in exile? Someone passing through, doing something, working in God's kingdom here where he's planted us, but do we see ourselves as only going through this to our heavenly home, which, which is our final destination? Or do we see this world as all that, all that it is. Many of you probably know about me that I like to um, study history. I like to do genealogy research. And in studying and doing some genealogy research in my own family in the past, I came across several um, of my ancestors who fought in the Confederate Army. And um, one of my ancestors in particular was uh, captured in a battle in, uh, called Cedar Creek. It was in, um, up in northern Virginia on October 19, 1864. And so naturally I wanted to, you know, research that battle and see what happened, what caused him to get captured. I mean, he had to spend about eight or nine months in a prison camp up in Maryland before he was released. And so as I began to study this, this battle out and read books on it, I, one thing I found out is that this was really one of the last-ditch efforts of the Southern Army to try to win the war. It was going bad at this time. Uh, there were several months removed from the Battle of Gettysburg, and things were not going bad. The war was probably fixing to come to an end. And so what they did is they dispatched part of the army to go up to try to attack Washington, D.C. And their, their mind was, their thinking was, if we can just get into Washington, D.C. and just surround it and, and cause problems for it, that would, that would make Lincoln and all of them want to try to sue for peace and then just kind of call it a draw. And so they tried to do that. They, they put together a brilliant um, military campaign, a battle plan for the battle itself. And so what they were going to do is they, they marched all night up to where the Union camps were 
and they were going to, uh, before uh, it even the sun came up, they were going to attack. Um, and they didn't even know that it was coming. All the Union, the Union Army was still in their tents. Many, a few of them were up uh, cooking breakfast, getting ready for the day. And it, they, they caught them completely off guard, completely by surprise. It started out as a rout. They were just, I mean, can you imagine thousands and thousands of rebel soldiers converging out of the, out of the woods, screaming and yelling with, with bayonets and guns charging? What would you do? You'd drop and ran. And that's what most of them did. They just dropped everything they had and ran. And so the battle was going great. Um, they, were, they were running. Uh, they were completely disorganized. But then something happened. As the, the reserves, the Confederate reserves began to come through the areas where they had first pushed through the camps, what did they do? Man, there's some breakfast over there. Look at those, look at those nice shoes laying over there. Look at this. Well, what they did is they, they instead of continuing the pursuit and, and providing reserve uh, forces to come up and, and finally uh, complete the battle, they just stopped right there and just started plundering the camp, starting going through and taking the food that was being cooked and uh, the blankets and the shoes and things that they didn't have very well. And so they started doing all that. And so what that did, that gave the retreating army, Union Army, time to regroup. Their general came on the scene and, and rallied them and got them regrouped, and they pushed back, and then finally, uh, and ultimately it led in a Confederate defeat. Uh, the, the army was defeated. And so I found that kind of ironic that they, they had everything going well, but what stopped, the, what stopped the progress? What ultimately defeated them? The spoils that they had to run through and see. Their stomachs, yeah. The things that they were, the things that they were needed. They were good things. It was food. These, these poor uh, guys were starving. But they took their mind off of their mission. They took their mind off what they were there to do and they, and they looked down around them and seen all these spoils, and they stopped what they were doing, and they began to plunder that. And that gave the, the enemy a chance to regroup and then ultimately dis, defeat them. And so that, that pretty much was the last major battle of the war. Everything else was just kind of little things. But, but anyway, that's kind of how I think he got captured. And so I think that's the way we are. We're like those Confederate soldiers. We're here on a mission. We're in this world doing what God has put us here to do. Uh, we have a goal in mind. We have a... We have a general who's, who's leading us. And so what do we do? We take our mind off the mission and we look around us and see all these great things at our feet that were in our enemy's camp. And, and it, it just grabs us and they say, oh, don't you want this? Don't you want this nice car? Don't you want this nice vacation? Don't you want this? Don't you want that? All these things draw us away from what God has given us to do, our mission and our goal. And so we have to combat that with everything we have. Jim Elliott, the... Um, the missionary who was martyred in South America was uh, famous for saying when he was talking about why he did what he did, why he gave up his life to go down and try to, to reach out to these, uh, to these South American um, people. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see what he's saying there? You're not foolish to give up the things of this world because they're fleeting. They're not going to be here long. They're temporary. They have no eternal value. And what you're giving up, what you're gaining in place of them is eternal. You cannot lose it. And so we have to keep that in mind. And so John is saying here, the world is passing away along with its desires. It's a fact. It's happening right now. One day all of it's going to burn up. But, he says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. The will of God is described really in two ways in the Bible. First, it talks about God's decorative will, His sovereign will, whatsoever He has decreed will come to pass. But a second way He talks about His will is His declared will, his, the Scriptures, his, um, his precepts, the Bible. And so I think that's what, John, that's what John is talking about here when he says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does uh, obeys the Scriptures. Jesus said it very clear. I mean, this, is, this, this verse is so small, we all ought to know it, and we all ought to memorize it, and we all ought to say it to ourselves every morning. John 14, 13, or 15, rather. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's that simple. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, what is the opposite there? If you don't keep my commandments, you're not really loving me. Right? Contrast. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Jesus says in Matthew 7, he's going to have to say some terrible words to some people in the end of time. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, some people are going to say, wait a minute, didn't we? aren't you our Lord? We did all these things in your name. And he said, no. Depart from me. You never knew me. I never knew you. And so when he's talking about doing the will of God, he's talking about a steady a way of life and obeying the Scriptures. And we've already talked about that in First John before, and we're going to talk about it some more in, in, in sermons to come, that true obedience, true faith leads to true obedience. This is nothing new. A Christian is one who is a doer of the Word, not just a hearer. You know, if we go around life just learning about the Scriptures, learning what this verse means, learning what this doctrine means, but we never apply it, we haven't done anything. We have not accomplished anything. And so, he said, whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is a strong word. It means to remain, abide. It can be talking about a place, a time, or a state of condition. But whatever it's talking about is talking about it's there. It's forever. You will remain forever. Whoever does the will of God remains forever. What are some practical observations and applications we can take away from this? I've got four I want to go over with you. The first one is, even though God is commanding us to not love the world or the things in the world, we must not remove ourselves from the world. Isolating yourself from the world is not the answer. Taking monastic vows or going off and living in communes or whatever, that's not the answer because the world itself is really not the problem. The world itself is not the problem. We are the problem. It's a heart issue. You can, you can go off and live in these places or take these vows, but you're, you can still be just as worldly because your heart has not been changed. I would, I would ask you, if you would, just keep your hand here and flip back to the, to the book of John, chapter 17. John chapter 17, it's kind of a lengthy portion, so I just want, to, want you to go there so you can follow along. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 21, and I want you to space, pay special attention to the many times John uses the word world, because this is a word, a word that he uses a lot in his writings, whether it be in the gospel or in his letters. And so this is what we call, what we know as Jesus' high priestly prayer, the prayer that he utters uh, to God on our behalf in the garden on the night he was betrayed, and so... But I want you to pay attention to what he's saying about this aspect of we cannot, we should not remove ourselves from the world. John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in, in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father." Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here's the key verse. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As, I sent, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so you see, he used the world, the word world there a lot. Uh, and not all, and some of the instances he was using, he was talking about the world of men. But some of these things he's talking about, the, the evil world system that we're talking about. But verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So he's praying for God to protect them. But the way he asked God to protect them is not to remove us, them. Actually, at that time, he was praying about the apostles themselves and the work that they had to do to spread the church, to begin the church. And so he's saying, you can't take them out of the world because then we can't accomplish what you have asked to be accomplished. Your kingdom will not spread because it is through the apostles that his church began. And so he's not asking that he take them out, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The evil one, Satan, is really a synonym for the evil world system that we talked about, that third way of looking at that word. And so what he's saying is don't take them out of the world of people, but protect them from the world system. And so that's what we have to keep in mind. It's not staying away from the bad that's going to keep us from being worldly. It's, it's, it's asking God and, and leaning on God's uh, provision and his resources to keep us from the evil one. The draw of the world system is what we have to combat. And so, because he says, Father, are, you are in me and I in you, that they also be, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's why we're, he's leaving us in the world. Because he says, I don't pray for these only, but for those who will believe in your name. That, that's us. We're the ones who have believed through the apostles' teachings. And so he's saying that's why we, he leaves us in this world. We have, on one hand, we've got to combat the world system, but on the other hand, we've got to reach out to the world of people to draw them out of that world system through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're here to do. We must have the gospel upon our lips at all times and see uh, these opportunities as doors from God to pro- proclaim this gospel. And that's hard sometimes because some of these people, can I, they're weird. They're dirty. They look funny. They smell funny. They say ugly things. But that's what he told us to do. That's not the people, that's not the world system that we're worried about. It's the world system that's got them in bondage to that is what we're worried about. But we've got to get out of this mindset that, oh, the Christian life has got to be comfortable. We can't have these people coming around us. We've got our little thing going here and it's nice and, and it's comfortable. That's when we're beginning to act worldly, when we have that mindset. And so we've got to realize that these people are in bondage to the world system as we were. And we have the only cure to that. And we can't look down on them and say, why are you doing that? Because why aren't they doing that? What else will they do? They're doing what comes natural to them, just as we used to. And so we have to get past this idea that I can't get my fingers and and hands dirty in that mess. I mean, Christian life is dirty. The world is dirty. But... We have to get out there in the midst of it and impact it for the kingdom because that's the answer to it. The second observation I make is that we must identify specific instances of worldliness in our own lives and seek to change. I mean, this is where where the rubber hits the road. This is where we as individuals have to be constantly... Renewing our mind, as, John, as Paul said, to not be conformed to the world. And by doing that, we're identifying God's bringing the light of his scriptures upon issues of gossip, slander, not be willing to reconcile with brothers and sisters, lust, whatever. I mean, I could sit here and, and rattle off all kind of a list and you could add to it. But the issue is each one of us has, has degrees of worldliness that we, are, that we are comfortable with. 
One of the uh, books that, uh, that I preached on a while back was by Jerry Bridges. It's called Respectable Sins. And one of them was worldliness. And so what he was saying in that is that, you know, there is a certain degree that Christians will say, well, if you do that, you're worldly. You know, if you, if you go do this and go do that and go do this, some of the things that even the world itself would think, well, I don't know if that's right or not. That's, that's one degree of worldliness. But there's a whole other subtle degree of worldliness that we just accept as part of our lives. Not going to reconcile with one another. That's what the world does. Talking about each other behind our backs. Saying unloving things to one another. Gossiping, slandering, backbiting. All these things are the way of the world system. The evil world system. But yet they seem to be acceptable to us. And we've got to combat that. We've got to recognize that in us. Anything that is opposed to God, by definition, is, a, is the evil world system. And so we have to... Uh, to let the Scriptures, let the Holy Spirit take the Word of God and, and shine the light of His Word upon our lives, and then what does it do? We're looking in that mirror, and it begins to expose the ugliness, the things that we need to wipe away. And so we have to do that. We have to work hard at doing that. The third thing I would notice here is that we must be willing to help each other in our fight against worldliness. You can't do this by yourself. Remember the scripture I read last week about Satan, our enemy is like a prowling lion out there seeking whom he may devour. He loves to see Christians off by themselves, off doing their thing by themselves because he knows that they don't have the benefit of the church to be there to surround them and to protect them. And so we have to get over this Lone Ranger mentality that, that we, all, we often have. And all of us do it. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's how you fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens. What does that look like? It looks like a lot of different ways. You know, we, we tend to do pretty good when something major happens, like somebody's in the hospital or somebody dies. We, that's something tangible I can put my eyes on and say, that's painful. I can rush to that. We can do that. But when somebody's engrossed in some sin, somebody has disappeared and not, they have not been coming to church for some time, we tend to say, well, they must have their reasons. I don't know. Maybe we need to investigate. Maybe we need to call up and encourage one another. The writer of Hebrews talks about our assembling together. And why do we need to not forsake the assembling together? Just because these seats need to be filled and we need to have money coming into this church so we can do these things, pay for my salary and Nick's salary and all this other stuff? No. That's not why we need people in this church. We need people in these seats because of what the writer says, encouraging one another. That's the purpose of the church, is to encourage one another in our daily struggles with the world system that we walk in every day, that we have to deal with every day, but also the evils of our own heart. That's what we need one another for. You can sit every Sunday and every Wednesday and every day that the church is open and fill a chair and not fulfill that admonition to encourage one another. And so it's not simply about being here. It's about being involved in each other's lives. That's what the writer is talking about. That's what Paul's talking about here, bearing one another's burdens. So we have to be willing to do that with each other. We have to be willing to fight for each other in our battle against sin. And then finally, we must be continuously and diligently seeking to grow in our love for God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, because that's the answer there. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't love the world and the Father. James says it in four. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What causes... Now listen to this about... I mean, listen as I read this. Because he's given you the definition of where all our problems come from. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose it is, uh, it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's it, isn't it? Why can't we be a dynamic church? Maybe it's because we're so busy, because we're bored and we're quarreling with one another because we're worldly. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not throwing that out there as saying that's the cause in every, every case. I'm just saying when that, when that is present, then James is saying, obviously we're not loving God. And so if we don't love God, we're going to love somebody because agape love is so powerful, it's there for us. It's going to draw us to something. We are going to love something in this life. It's either God or it's us and the world that we live in. And so what he's saying here is plain and simple. If you want to defeat this, if you want to have victory, give everything you have to your relationship with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. We must be continuously and diligently seeking to grow because it doesn't happen by itself. I talked about last week that spiritual life and physical life are in some ways alike, but in the ways that, that physical life happens naturally, spiritual life does not happen naturally. It takes effort. It takes work on our part. God blesses us, and He's there doing it, superintending it. He's sovereign, and He will accomplish it. But we can't just sit down and just say, expect Him to do it for us. We have to work hard and diligently and love God because, as He says here, He's a jealous God. Because He has a right to be. Because any if, if God did not yearn jealously because sometimes we think, well, how can we say God is jealous? Isn't jealousy a sin? Not when it comes to God. Because God is foremost in his own affections, right? If he were not, he would not be God. And so he has the right to be jealous whenever we are not putting our affections on him because what is that? It's idolatry. And so we have to combat that. In an article in 1989 in Christianity Today, um, Tom Sign wrote these words, and this is 20 years ago, but I think it applies today. Whatever commands our time, energy, and resources commands us. And if we are honest, we will admit that our lives really are not that different from those of our secular counterparts. I suspect that one of the reasons we are so ineffective in evangelism is that we are so much like the people around us that we have very little to which we can call them out. We hang around church buildings a little more. We abstain from a few things, but we simply aren't that different. As a result of this unfortunate accommodation, Christianity is reduced to little more than a spiritual crutch to help us through the minefields of the upwardly mobile life. God is there to help us get our promotions, our house in the suburbs, and our bills paid. Somehow God has become a co-conspirator in our agendas instead of our becoming a co-conspirator in his. Something is seriously amiss. And he's right. That's true today. Nothing has changed. And so we have to constantly ask ourselves, whether you're in the workplace, whether you're at school or at the home or wherever, look around and see how people act and then look at yourself and see if it's any different. And if it's not, you need to do some work. And we need to be there to help each other do that work. Because as John said last week, we are overcomers. We've already won the war. The resources are there. We're forgiven in Christ. We know the Father. We can win this battle. But it's difficult. And so we have to be there to fight it. Because if we're not any different than the world around us, then why would they listen to our message about the gospel? Why would they? Why would I give up my Saturday, my Sunday when I can sleep in to go hang out at a church when you'd look just like me Monday through Friday? I don't blame them. I don't blame them one bit for thinking that. And so we have to take that and realize that we are at fault there. We are too much like the world. And it's very subtle. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to figure out sometimes where we are, but we are. 
And so we have to combat that. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, and I'll say this in closing. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He was asking a question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Now, Christians, we can't forfeit our soul. We're forgiven, right? But to live in the world and to have affections for the world above God is like is having an adulterous affair on our husband. It's the same thing. And so it should grieve us to our core when we do that. And so we have to combat that with everything we have. And we can be, a dy- we can be dynamic Christians for Christ and wherever he's planted us, and we can be a dynamic church in this community because if we, if we do things like building a habitat house or starting a Christian school or doing whatever, thing, whatever God has in store for us in the future, if we do all these things and yet we don't look any different from the world, they're going to be a waste. They're not going to accomplish what we need to accomplish. God needs set-apart people that don't thumb their nose at the world, don't look down at them, but at the same time we don't, we don't look like them. We're not with them. And so we have to work hard on that and not to not love the world because Christians do not love the world. That's a fact. That's what John is teaching us here. Christians do not love the world or the things in the world. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rich truths of your word. And Lord, in many ways, these are hard things to hear. Lord, because the difficult... Um, difficulty of living in this world, especially in this country and the things that it provides for us, it feeds our flesh. Our flesh yearns for it. And Lord, we have to recognize that that flesh has fallen and that your spirit yearns against that. And so, Father, help us to feed and walk in the spirit and not the flesh. Help us to be there for one another in our fight against sin and against this world. And, Father, help us to have compassion for those in this world who are engrossed in the world system. Father, not identifying ourselves with them, but nonetheless reaching out and running to their rescue with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what you did to bring us out of the world. And so we thank you, God, that you you have put us here. We thank you for the time that you've put us here and for the opportunities that we have to impact the world. But God, help us to love you and love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we may, it may not be said of us that we look like the world. Bless us to be that kind of people and that kind of church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.